The Gist is brought to you by Goldman Sachs. Get information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. And by Betterment, the largest automated investing service managing billions of dollars for people just like you. Get up to six months of investing free when you go to betterment.com slash gist. Betterment, investing made better. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, March 22nd, 2016 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. At first, I thought I was experiencing compassion fatigue. Paris, horrible, horrible death toll. San Bernardino, roughly a tenth as deadly as Paris, but it was here in America. So then this morning when I saw the news of Belgium, where you do the thing you try to do of taking the news in yourself, but shielding the children from it, so you know how to process and explain it to them later, I had a thought that this Belgian attack, though terrible, though awful, just isn't of the scale. It was, in a way, it was a comforting thought that the terrorists are in a spiral and they either have to go bigger or closer to gain the same sort of fear from us here in the West. Maybe I'm a nerd, maybe that's a defense mechanism, but a defense mechanism is still a defense. But then I began to think that I was only telling myself this was true. Because as I listened to and watched more and more news of the attacks, I began to feel the same feelings that I felt before. Just how sad and stupid and nihilistic it all was. But this time, I worried that people might now flock to Trump. That Hillary Clinton's mostly reasonable responses would be drowned out by Captain Crazy Pants. So I guess we'll just have to see what happens with that. And what... I'm really talking about here, and what I was thinking about is really how terrorized we all are. Because, you know, they're not the ones calling themselves terrorists. They call themselves jihadists, martyrs. We call them terrorists, and we're right. Sadly, infuriatingly, it's the most accurate label there is. Because the label doesn't describe an action. We think it does. We pretend it does. We say it describes a tactic, bombing this or shooting up that. Terrorism describes a reaction, our reaction. And we do have that reaction. We don't call the terrible costs of gun deaths in America terrorism because that doesn't terrorize us. We don't fear gun deaths. If we did, we'd do something about them. By the way, If I were a black man in Chicago or D.C. or New Orleans or Baltimore or Oakland or Memphis, I would say that what we saw in Paris and in Belgium or San Bernardino even, that's not my terrorism. I'd say my heart goes out to the victims, of course, but we got victims right here in these cities. And this, this gun violence, is our terrorism. So what do I want from this international terrorism? Well, I want our governments to be committed. I want our policing to be robust. I want our future leaders to offer something approaching hope based on logic. I want my fellow Americans to consciously think about what gives terrorists their power and to consciously try to rob them of their power. We'll see how the tactics change in Europe, and I guess we'll see how the sentiment changes here in America. On the show today, another international event, not incident event, a momentous and hopeful one. The president is in Cuba. I offer a textual analysis. But first, the terror that I spoke of, or at least a narrow slice thereof, guns in America, people killed by cops. There has never been a real count of the people who've been killed by cops until now. 
Betterment lets you take control of your financial future. It has 145,000 customers. It's managing over $3.8 billion. It does it without the hard sell. It really just gives you information. And we have some information to give to you about how you can sign up for Betterment. If you go to betterment.com gist, you can get up to six months of automated investing free. That's betterment.com slash gist, because now is the perfect time to talk about saving for retirement or paying down your student loan or saving up for kids' college. I find there's always something to be worried about with money, and Betterment is there to help alleviate those worries. That's betterment.com slash gist, betterment investing made easier. We're a society driven by and riven by data. I could tell you who the 18th best women's college basketball team in Division III is by a pretty advanced statistical method. I could tell you what states saw spikes of racist search terms in advance of their Republican primaries. Here's something we can't tell you. How many people the cops killed last year? But we're trying to. Seems like a pretty important number, doesn't it? The Guardian, at theguardian.com, has embarked on a series called The Counted, People Killed by Police in the U.S. recorded by The Guardian with your help. Joining me now is Lee Glendinning, who is the editor of The Guardian U.S. She drove The Counted, this series. Hello, Lee. Hello. So the Justice Department will tell us that there is some unconscionable number of police departments, and they define police departments pretty broadly. A community college can have four officers working for them. That's a police department. They rely on the reporting of these police departments. It's either haphazard or slipshod or sometimes self-serving. So did you find you couldn't go through the police departments to get your figures? Yeah, I think there's 18,000 police agencies throughout the United States. And the problem with this program that the FBI did have was that it's a voluntary set up. So these police departments and agencies could decide whether or not they were going to give this information. And what that led to was, I think, the year before we started doing this, the amount of police killings that were given to the FBI was something like 444 in a year. And our count in 2015 was two and a half times that by the end of the year. So it just wasn't allowing anyone to get a sense of what the actual figures were when you're, when you're relying on a voluntary setup. What was the official number before you started looking and what number have you come out with? So the FBI the year before had the 444. Our number at the end of 2015 was 1,134. It's an astonishing figure. Were most of them shot? What was the manner of death? Yeah, I mean, most of them are shootings. But as I said, there's other, you know, there's a lot, a high number of uh, taser killings as well, which is quite remarkable. How did you try to figure out if it was armed or unarmed or justified or unjustified? How'd you wade into that? Mm. So we said from the beginning of the launch of this project that we wanted to do this, but we couldn't do it without the help of the public. And so we felt that crowdsourcing was an incredibly important part of the Countered. And so we asked from the beginning for people to send us tips, for them to tell us what they were seeing in their area, so that we would then verify that information. We would go through local police reports. We would source documentation. We would check with police records, with coroner's reports, with local media agency follow-up. We would double and triple source all this information and then verify it that way. So we had, I think, within the first month, a huge community around the counter, something like thirty to 35,000 people built up around this project wanting to tell us what was happening in their area. Could we look into this? And as a result, there's eight people who were killed last year who we discovered and these these killings and these deaths would not have been recorded should it not have been for our project. 
of the 1,134, which was the findings at the end, end of the year, but now I'm just on your site, it's up to 1,140 or 41 because I know that you verify um, and will add people to the list as more come to light. Of those, do we know how many were considered a justified homicide? How many of those uh, killed were armed at the time? Mm. So what we're doing is because we're recording these figures in real time, we're recording the deaths and then we're looking into the investigations of those deaths. And so that takes time to bring together whether people were unarmed or armed as as the, this happened. So on each person within this database, there is sort of six or seven pieces of demographic information, including whether they were unarmed or armed. And then we follow through with the investigation. We look at stories connected to that. So for example, there was a huge amount of a real conflict of interest problem really with some of these killings because prosecutors who were working side by side with these police officers ended up investigating the case. Our research showed that in 85% of these cases, there was a conflict of interest problem arising here. In the Wall Street Journal, Heather McDonald, who's been on this show sort of arguing with me, (laughs) uh, wrote an article called The Myths of Black Lives Matter. And in there, and I think she made some bad arguments, but this was her worst. She wasn't using your database, but the Washington Post has done a similar project. And she says, according to the Post database, in 2015, officers killed 662 whites and Hispanics and 258 blacks. So that's one of her myths, that fatal shootings make up a larger portion of white and Hispanic homicide deaths than black homicide deaths. And yet, how is that a myth? If you just count the number of people and say that whites, and here she conflates whites and Hispanics, three times as many whites were killed by police, which roughly correlates to what you found, you'd have to norm it for their percentage in the population. And then with one click of a button on your site, you find that per million, blacks are extremely more likely to be killed by police. Mm. Yeah, I think that argument is is problematic. I mean, our findings were that young black men were nine times more likely than other Americans to be killed by police. And that, I mean, I I find that... um, That is one of the key findings from this one-year investigation of ours, nine times more likely to be killed by police. So the the stats there, I'll read them to you from your site. Last year, per million, 7.2 black people per million killed by police and 2.92 white people. And then, of course, when you get to black men, well, what was the gender breakdown? I mean, it must have been, what, 90% men, something like that? very high. So when you get to young men, we find a huge disproportion killed by police. What else did you find? What did you find that maybe you didn't expect to find? The data led us to some really interesting themes, as I said before, which we, you know, you, you don't know to look for in the beginning. And when you're doing a data-led project, when the numbers are falling in a certain way, it leads you into really, really interesting areas. So one huge um, project and series that we did was called The County. It's like a five-part series on a look at Kern County in California, where we found there'd been more deaths at the hands of police than anywhere else in the United States. So Kern County, California, this is the Inland Empire. This is Bakersfield, California. This is, you know, now experiencing extremely tough economic times after the housing bubble. They were hit really hard. A lot of empty houses, a lot of crime. That's right. And so we found that 13 people were killed uh, in Kern County between January and November last year. Kern County has a population of just under 875,000 people. And this is this is 13 people killed in this particular county. And when you compare that to the NYPD across the five counties of New York City, there's nine people killed in New York. So in this county, which has fewer than a million people, mm. there are 13 people killed. Yeah. In all of New York City, which has, what do you have, the population there? Eight million? 
I think the population of my city is around 8 million. It's really 10 times as high. Yeah, All that's right. right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the population of New York City is eight times as high, only nine people killed. Mm. I've often said that the NYPD is actually a pretty great police force in terms of, in terms of shootings. And one reason is that there's so many fewer guns. Then you have Kern County. I'm going to suspect that Kern County was one of these places when the FBI asked counties to self-report they were less than forthcoming. Yeah, and there's a lot of places like that. And, and These what... black holes, but for your report, we'd never even find out what's going on. Yeah, there. and I think, I think the problem is that there's just no, when there's no arbitrary nature uh, to report this information, but also whether, when there's no formula, whether, when uh, agencies and police, police organisations are not handing in the same kinds of information, then you have no yep. national picture whatsoever. And, and to fill out the national picture, it's your readers who are submitting stories, but mostly it's stories that they read in local press. I mean, you can do a web search, but you're going to miss a bunch. So they, That's right. it, it almost needed to have been covered by some media somewhere to rise to your attention. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's local media reports, but it's also members of the public. I think what we found with this is we've got a very um, small team of people working on it. We have four four reporters working on this. Um, and when you're trying to do the job of a government agency over an entire year, which you would imagine should this be set up in a government agency, there would be so many more people working to collect this information every day. So it's an enormous task. Unless it's the actual U.S. Department of Justice, in which case (laughs) that's not the case. But yes, no, I know what you mean. What about the issue of who's doing the shooting? Black officers, white officers, that must be really tough to find because if that's not originally reported by the police and makes its way into news media, how do you find it out? Yeah, so that again takes a lot of time and the important thing for us is that we're doing real-time reporting in this project of, of when these deaths are happening. And then we're going back over every single incident to then decipher who was involved, what the state of play is with the investigation and so on. Okay, so you're doing this. Uh, I referenced that the Washington Post is doing a similar project. Mm. Is there any effort to check with each other? You know, wild dream here, get the government to actually pay attention to this? Where does it go from here? Yeah, so as a result of the work that that we have done at Guardian US and the Washington Post, the FBI uh, director James Comey said it was it was just simply unacceptable that the government wasn't keeping this kind of information. And so the FBI and the Justice Department have started piloting uh, a program based on what we've done at Guardian US, so to collate the information on all kinds of police killings, not just shootings, and to start to put together uh, a program that doesn't rely on um, purely voluntary uh, admissions. It's still the the fundamental flaw of the program of getting 18,000 police departments to voluntarily give you statistics if you're the FBI. That fundamentally hasn't changed. That's right. Yeah. And they're, they're piloting a program to get more information. But what we want to do is continue to hold the government to account until this happens. So we'll continue to count um, until we feel that there is a um, program in place to collect this data in a mandatory way on a national scale. So last year, you uncovered a little less than 1,200 deaths. Mm-hmm. This year, we're three months and change into this year and it's 200 deaths. Yeah, just shy of 200. Yeah. So which means that we're again on track for about 1,200 deaths, Mm. even with all the attention, Mm. even with the so-called whatever effect. I've called, I've heard it called the Ferguson effect or the Freddie Brown effect or the Laquan McDonald effect in Chicago that casts some doubt on these so-called effects where police officers aren't engaging. But, you know, what else does it say that paying attention doesn't seem to have nudged the numbers at all? 
I think that our view is that we, we can't even get a sense of the gravity of the problem without a count. And so our duty here and what we wanted to do was to count every day to start to look at the areas which were worse, uh, the, pro the, the regions where this was happening more than anywhere else, and just to be reporting out where particular problems were happening so we could draw attention to this on a daily basis and call for a mandatory national database, which is the first step in them beginning to address the rest of the problem. Lee Glendinning is the editor of The Guardian. The project is called The Counted. It's counting people killed by police in the U.S. They are requiring, they are asking for the public's help. So if you want to go to the site and uh, try to contribute to this project, it's something that we as a society need. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. And now the spiel, una rosa blanca. President Obama gave a speech in Cuba today. This was before he caught a baseball game, but it was after he heard Raul Castro deny that there were any political prisoners on the island. Show me the list, he demanded. Now show me who wrote up that list. Okay, that guy's arrested. But Obama made one of those diplomatic overtures that politicians make that was both lyrical and appropriate. Cultivo una rosa blanca. In his famous... In his most famous poem, Jose Marti made this offering of friendship and peace to both his friend and his enemy. You see this from time to time. A dignitary will visit a foreign land and name a few of their great cultural exports. But it's really, I was thinking it's really hard to do with a country like the United States. We've just got so much stuff, you know? Like, I can't see the queen or a queen saying, and of course, we have such great admiration for the many, many great Americans over the years and today. Thomas Edison, Abraham Lincoln, visionary CEO and humanitarian Bill Gates, great thespians like Turtle from Entourage. I just can't see that. We're too big. But this actually wasn't where the president was going. He wasn't just shouting out prominent Cubans. He was tying our two countries together. He was listing examples of U.S.-Cuba cooperation from the past. Over the years, our cultures have blended together. Dr. Carlos Finlay's work in Cuba paved the way for generations of doctors, including Walter Reed, who drew on Dr. Finlay's work to help combat yellow fever. Just as Marti wrote some of his most famous words in New York, Ernest Hemingway made a home in Cuba and found inspiration in the waters of these shores. We share a national pastime, La Pelota. And later today, our players will compete on the same Havana field that Jackie Robinson played on before he made his major league debut. Because, you know, that sort of thing was allowed here at the time. Not so much where I live. But soon, we'll be seeing the Tampa Bay Rays. And while you might think that a full crowd going to watch the Tampa Bay Rays might be something that Cubans and Americans have in common, actually very few Americans participate in that particular activity. Maybe if we had brought down the Yankees, but of course that opens us up to Yankees go home chance. Then again... 
hating the Yankees. Now, there is a cultural trait that could be shared by Cubans and the vast majority of Americans. Look, I'm just glad that Obama didn't get into Trout versus Cabrera for the MVP. Now, the counting statistics, I know the Cubans like them, but if you look at VORP, if you look at Pocota. Anyway, the president then went on to list singers that the two countries can both be proud of. People in both of our countries have sung along with Celia Cruz or Gloria Estefan and now listen to reggaeton or pitbull. Pitbull, I guess appropriate because barriers between our countries. It's going down. I'm yelling to my, you better move. You better dance. By the way, I know you Cubans are often shut out from the free flow of information, but you may not have heard Kesha is now without the dollar sign. So it's just Kesha with an S, no dollar sign. But here's the thing about Pitbull. I know the president cited him as shared culture, but pretty soon, I mean, if you listen to some of Pitbull's lyrics, like from that song we were just playing, or this part from the song The Anthem, I just think that on the one hand, we'll be citing Pitbull and then pretty soon we'll be having to send Joe Biden down to undo all of what Pitbull is saying. When it comes to sexual abuse, it's quite simple. No means no. No means no if you're drunk or you're sober. All right, so on the one hand, you got the president shouting out Pitbull. On the other hand, there is an appropriate White House initiative about consent and rape. And you might think that Obama would have a hard time explaining that. But, you know, maybe you could just say, no, democracy is messy. Your transition, it won't be as placid as the Caribbean waters. Sometimes it will be like waves crashing over the seawall of El Malecón. Like, take America. We're a democracy, right? Yet the president is being pilloried in some quarters by, really, one out of two political parties for reaching out his hand. And this is even though a recent CBS poll, which is in line with all the other public polling, shows that a majority, 58% in this poll, support Obama reaching out to Cuba. 25% oppose it. Yet he had to do it by executive action. He couldn't even do it democratically. And this policy has been the will of the people for 40 years. Gallup polled on it in 1974 and asked, do you oppose or favor reestablishing diplomacy with Cuba? And the vast majority of Americans, even back then, said they were in favor of it. So it may seem a little odd that the Americans are there to sing to the Cubans the glories of democracy when, in fact, a thwarting of the democratic will has forced the song to be stuck in our throats for so long. But now I say, let the tune be sung. And let it be sung by, ah, oh, what the hell, ladies and gentlemen, Pitbull. Me not working hard. Yeah, right, picture that with a Kodak. Or better yet, go to Times Square, take a picture of me with a Kodak. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi's Got Cribs, Got Condos We Can Stay. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Got an ass like a donkey with a monkey. Look like King Kong. Welcome to the crib. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network as such. He make dollars, I mean billions. He a genius. I mean brilliance. The gist. We made him slicker than Slick Rick the ruler. We've lost a lot. We've learned a lot. But we're still undefeated like Shula. Mpuru depuru du peru. And thanks for listening. (laughs) 